Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, and my co hosts, Alan Ben Joseph and David Vaucher. Today we will be analyzing the article David wrote on the Argon Space One, which is currently live on Kickstarter and will be for another day or two. So if you haven't seen it yet and you want to get one, make sure you hurry over there after you've listened to this episode. Firstly, hello, gents. How are you both? All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, super proud to be back after a long time and uh, what a watch to to be back with. Yeah, it certainly is an interesting one for us to discuss. It's not like many things we've seen before and certainly not at this price point as we restated on a couple of occasions in the article. So let's start off from a very personal perspective with Alon's opinions on this piece and what he thought when he first saw it. Disclaimer, I ordered the carbon version. And I knew I'm going to buy it the first time we saw a picture from Guillaume Lede. He showed us some pictures while he was working on the project. We have seen the prototypes, Rob and I, when we were at Geneva. Watch is a wonders fair. And then we had a heated debate because I'm a titanium guy, so I wanted to go to titanium. But I don't know why the carbon spoke to me. Later on, um, it was announced that the carbon and I don't remember which one, titanium, one of them were limited to 100. This is a subscription uh, sale. So one time, everything that gets ordered until June 9th, I believe. So one or two more days, guys and girls listening to order your watch on Kickstarter. And then it's over and they move on to chapter two. I said to myself, I'm getting one for sure. As the regular listeners know, I'm a huge fan of these futuristic designs, Uwerk and MBNF. And another disclaimer, I actually got my first Uwerk watch ever last week, which I gifted to myself for my 44th birthday. As I'm still four years into my midlife crisis, I said, F it. Life is too short. I'm going to do it. It's one of my great watches. I got the UR103.09. Actually bought it off a buddy of mine in white gold. So I'm super happy, super pumped. And you actually mentioned that, David, in your article, that it can be a gateway drug to buy an Argon watch as a stepping stone to an aspiring customer who wants a Uwerk, MBNF, etc. And it's true. I totally agree with you. And I believe also the reverse is in place because I actually rocked that Uwerk this weekend while going to a festival at the kiddies farm with my kids and getting literally dirty there. And I don't think that was the right place to wear my Uwerk. And for that occasion, I might strap on the Argon, for example. So, um, so I wanted to um, kick that in as well because that could also be an option right literally wear it as a baby or substitute or another um, example i want to use is uh, almost every speedy fan bought a moon swatch right so how do you wear them locations you don't want to wear heavy metal or expensive moon watch or speedmaster watch you probably might strap on a moon swatch that could be a reason unless you want to color match your outfit I was fast enough to obtain the carbon one, so I'm very excited to see it in the flesh. And the third disclaimer I want to put out there, I did not think one split second about the, the Bethune Dreamwatch. 
strangely enough, because obviously it was on my radar, the moment somebody said it, hey, it is also a watch that could remind you of that watch, I immediately remembered Alicia Keys' husband, Swiss Beats, rocking one of those. That's the first one time I've ever seen one. I'm a huge fan of futuristic designs. I'm a fan of spaceships. So I'm a Star Wars and Star Trek geek. So it really resonates with me. I think you, you've touched on a couple things that I didn't think of in the article and a couple of things I think that we can still tie into it. So I think from the design point of view, I mean, there's there's two parts to the design. I think the second part is kind of the, the imitation of the Batuman, and we'll probably spend quite a bit of the article talking about that. But I think just touching on the, the spaceship looks, I mean, I mentioned that in the article, but there's this this school of design, uh, or at least a, a subreddit on Reddit for what it's worth, called Retrofuturism. And uh, it's the future as imagined from the point of view of like the mid-century, so 1950s, 1960s. And it is kind of strange that, uh, you know, watches which are, I mean, they're out of date, they're, you know, functionally uh, out of date, but people seem to love them when you you put them in a futuristic shape. So it just seems to make people's like pleasure centers go off as it, as it did for you, Alan, right? Because you saw it and you wanted to buy it. So that's interesting. And that was something that caught my attention. But as a, on a personal level, one thing I just want to mention here, and, and I'm mentioning it up front because I don't think we'll spend too much other time on this episode talking about it. But can we talk about the fact that like this is a French project? I mean, you know, Guillaume Lede, uh, Tio, Tio Ofre, like, you know, they're French and you probably couldn't tell if I weren't telling you this is to, to the TRTS listeners out there, but I'm French. And, uh, you know, France before the quartz crisis was a, a large manufacturing center for watches. And even if you look at the, his, the history of the Swiss watch industry, uh, it's very closely tied to uh, France and some of the decisions that the French made at the time. And so to me, having two young French guys with extreme credibility in the business take this on means that maybe five, 10, 20 years down the line, France does become a manufacturing center again. And ultimately, that's just good for the entire industry. So I think we have two important axes as I see them to this project. That's the kind of aesthetic one. Uh, and then, of course, the underlying sort of industry piece, which will probably play out over a longer time. That's an interesting point about the Frenchness of the project. I mean, I'm all for that. The more nations that can pick up tools and contribute to watchmaking, the better, in my opinion, because it just gives us much more diversity to choose from. And it's certainly very heartening to see a country that has such an esteemed history in the craft to be bringing it back and Guillaume is one of the most active I would say uh, entrepreneurs in watchmaking at the moment and this is the latest string to his bow and what a string I mean you talked about the design of a debutune already which I suppose given the fact that I am maybe playing the role today of the detractor as we do in these article analysis shows should have to talk about it and say, well, yeah, okay, I'm going to pose some of the negatives and I want your responses to them. I've seen some very good ones in the article. I've seen some very good ones in the Real-Time Show Network, which for anyone that doesn't know is our WhatsApp chat group for all of our most dedicated listeners. If you'd like to be a part of the network, then please just get in touch by one of the usual channels. So the Debitoon Dreamwatch, it's an incredible thing. It made waves when it launched. It has a very novel display through this little window close to the crown, in the case of the Dream Watch, which is right next to the hand as you wear the watch on, on your left wrist normally. 
and it has a moon phase, which is something the Archon doesn't have. I think that's a little bit ignored sometimes. They are actually functionally quite different, and they are very different in terms of build quality and brand prestige and the designer's own pedigree. But they are clearly cut from the same cloth. Now, there was one point in the article that I really liked, and that was the the fact that you brought up all of the round watches in the industry and how nobody says, oh, it's just another round watch. I mean, maybe we hear that every so often, and that's probably not a very nice thing to say about a watch, but it's normally true. Watches are normally round. The vast majority of watch cases are round. We don't kick off when we see a square cushion-shaped case and say, oh, it's just like a Tag Heuer Monaco. Maybe we do with a Panerai or something like that, perhaps. Maybe that's Maybe that is a an example of anything that strays from the norm. There seems to only be one perfect type of it. And we've heard some criticism that this watch is way, way, way too similar to the Dibitoon Dreamwatch. When you put them side by side, there's a couple of very key differences and maybe more differences than there are similarities. And the main one is, of course, the crown being on the other side. I hate to say this. I prefer the crown on the Argon. I think that's like actually a much nicer, more dynamic position for it. And it certainly keeps it out of the way of the wrist as it flexes. And talking of the wrist flexion, there is also this scalloped end of the case which on the Argon, which enables you to move your hand up and down. But, Alon, I want to pass it on to you. Does it matter that this watch is... I mean, we, we say clearly, clearly inspired as if we know 100% that they looked at the Dreamwatch and said, oh, let's do a watch like that, but at an affordable price point. But let's say... There's no way you can see one and not see the other when you have them both in mind. Do we think that is a problem? If so, why? If not, why not? Before we jump into that, Rob, um, a few things. Uh, I did some homework because I asked actually Guillaume, I had a call with Guillaume very briefly about something totally different. And I asked him if he's willing to come on the show to talk about this topic. And he is, and he, he actually said also that Theo Fre should actually come on. So we owe that to our dear listeners. So we still need to record those episodes or one episode. And I've been saying on the show that the founder of The Batoon is Belgian, but I stand corrected. I did a bit of homework, but he's actually French. So David, uh, another Frenchie for you. And I wanted to kid around with you that the, the Argon Project being French almost put me off from not buying it, but I'm just kidding. As Rob said, it's actually awesome that we see so much activity back in the old world, which is Europe. And what I want help here, David, is the pronunciation, because Rob and I were twisting our tongue. So is it Denis Flegiole? Ah, it's uh, so it's Denis Flegiole. <laughs> Rob, you see, Denis Flegiole. Pretty close. Did all right, except you kept putting another vowel in the middle of his surname. I'm not sure where that came from, but other than that, it's pretty good. We apologize to you, Denny, for all the mistakes we made on air beforehand. I would love to have him on the show. So as you said, rightfully so, Rob, we have no idea if it's inspired or not. Now we have to correct ourselves also a little bit because we keep, keep on talking that the crown is on the other side. Theo Offre and uh, Guillaume Lade did pull a 180 on us because mid-air during their Kickstarter campaign, they did a extra injection, I believe, of Limiteds which uh, they did right-hand crowns as well. Yeah, but the crown is still on the other side. Like, that's that's not... that. I mean, if you wore the right-handed version, 
on your left hand, it would just not, it would, the watch would be backwards. Exactly. Okay, right. I've been studying the Batune a bit. There are many dream watches, many iterations. It seems they keep on making small batches with small changes. And the funny thing is, Denis is not only a watchmaker, but he's also a blacksmith. And that made a lot of sense to me because the dream watch is more of a sculpture. I don't really see a, a spaceship in that. Obviously, when I look very hard, I could see it because of the moon phase on it. You could say, hey, there's a link with stars. That's why that watch didn't pop into my mind when I thought about these futuristic designs. I see actually a beautiful 1950s car in it or a very sleek boat or ship. Um, and, and, and that's why I didn't recall it. Um, obviously, there are the biggest similarity is the turning hour minute discs. But is it that innovative? Can the Bethune claim that? I don't think so. If I rack my brain and dig very deep, Weren't these watches already in existence in the 50s, Rob? Well, there have been quite some iterations of uh, our discs in the past, yes. So I, I think that to say that Dibbertoon invented the time display would not be absolutely correct. I think the jumping hour aspect of it is quite clever, and there's definitely a complication that Teo's uh, come up with himself to modify that movement in particular. But I think what we're talking about really is the whole concept. Like we can break down every individual aspect of the Space One or of the Dreamwatch and say, well, absolutely nothing is original. And that's also kind of fine. Kind of the point, maybe, the counter argument to imitation and, and copying and flattery is that everything's been done. And really, what we're trying to do is assemble everything that has been done already in a new and novel way. Like the combination of elements should be. Really, what we're focused on, I think, these days, I mean, how new can a watch case really be in terms of its shape and its operation? I mean, they have to be worn on a wrist. That's pretty limiting. That's a massive limiting factor when it comes to the design. Like, you have to have some kind of ergonomics built into the case so it can be worn. And so, when you look at the elements, when you look at the curves of the Dream Watch, it's far more voluminous than the rather flat and subtle edges of space one in comparison they simply have a very similar silhouette and are cut from the same shall we say emotional cloth rather than their proportions being absolute mirrors of one another a couple things that i want to bring up here one well i i guess i'll start with the the ten thousand foot view first and you had a, a very key word in your response which was uh, the whole concept, right? And so maybe, well, hopefully we have some time to touch on this at the end of, or towards the back half of the show, but it's really not just the design here, right? I mean, the design, we can talk about similarities or differences, but I think the delivery, the founders, you know, the price, uh, the the sale method, I think that's all part of the novelty of this. But the going back to the design, though, since that's still the topic that we're on, uh, I, I brought this up in the article, and it's not the first article I've brought it up in, but Virgil Abloh's 3% rule. You don't actually need to change something that much to have it be totally new. I mean, let's imagine that for round two, and I'm, I'm making this up, I have not spoken with Guillaume or Tio, but let's say that they made a, a ceramic version or a, a Damascus steel version or uh, you know a sapphire version. Okay, the shape stays the same, but changing the material up gives a whole new aspect to the, to the watch, which 
falls into the three, into the three percent rule, and I think at that point becomes something that's uh, compelling on its own uh, and doesn't just need to be compared to the Dibatoon or any other watch to be uh, to be desirable. That is interesting, though, that uh, a blow set up at the three percent, and when we go and look at intellectual property laws and copyright infringements, I believe they always say you need seven unique identifiers that are different to not be sanctioned as a copyright or having a copyright infringement. I do think that Argon falls into that category. I don't think we can call it a copy. We can call it maybe a tribute from day one. I call it a baby Uvec, baby MBNF. And for me, that's fine. And I guess the whole industry should be happy, as you rightfully stated, David, that it becomes a stepping stone for consumers, aspiring watch collectors, long-term watch collectors, to give it a test run and to see if, if it fits them, if they like it. And I'll give another example from my private collecting journey. I've always wanted a Patek Philippe 6000G the so-called roulette dial. And I was was always scared it was too little because when it was still in production and in the showcase at retailers, and FYI, I could have bought them with heavy discounts back in the day. I didn't because back then I was still on the big watch case bandwagon. The older I get, the more modest I think I become, some people say I don't, but I want to believe that I do. So I steer more to the platinum white gold cases or titanium matte finish or steel and less of the pink, red, and yellow gold, which I still do love. But I bought, for example, the collab between Baltic and a collected man because it's clearly that they got inspired by that 6,000 reference of Patek Philippe. It was also 37 millimeters. By coincidence, also had a micro rotor. So I bought that as a test drive, and I liked it so much. And I pulled the trigger on the 6,000G afterwards. Um, now, unfortunately, I bought the Urek already. Otherwise, I could have claimed that the Argon pushed me to buy the Urek. Um, so that that doesn't fly. But if we have to believe everything Swatch Group and uh, Omega says, the sales for the regular steel moon watches skyrocketed, no pun intended, because of people buying moon swatches, getting the gist of it, liking it, trying the case diameter, and say, hey, you know what? Plastic is not for me. Let me get the real deal. What do you, Jen, say? Yeah, I believe it. I do believe it. And I think that that's a pretty good argument in favor of having similar objects available at different price points uh, for good reason. And um, although, in principle, I very much agree with respecting a designer's intellectual property. And do believe that if you're going to do something, maybe the first watch that echoes a completely unique design, you should probably ask 
the designer how they feel about it or at least notify them and we don't know that didn't happen we're just saying like for future reference if somebody wants to tackle another extremely unique watch because then there's this almost collaborative aspect to it where you're saying look we want to produce something that we think will as david rightly said in the article ultimately be a good thing for the originator of that watch because there's going to be a lot of people that have come to watchmaking through argon now and a lot of those people are going to run into discussions like this and be like what's a dipathune dream watch and then they're going to go look for it and they're going to be like oh that's cool now i'm in this kind of world of watchmaking i am now a collector of interesting independence with non-standard shapes perhaps that watch will as we've mentioned earlier be their grail be the natural progression and be something that drags them into that part of our craft now that's great and the three percent thing virgil abloh's assertion is i think pretty well it's pretty arbitrary the number but his point is clear a very small amount needs to be changed and like you look at those two watches side by side yeah they got a similar form but not really any more similar than two round watches in fact i would say almost certainly less similar and if you look at like the little changes there like it isn't just the fact that there's no moon phase on the argon like that's a massive functional change that is an absence of something or it isn't just the fact that the crown is on the other side you know that's also like an ergonomic change it's it's things in the design that are very different like the argon has argon space one engraved on the top of it it has much sharper angles towards the center it has uh flatter surfaces it has uh two pointy bits at its tail instead of one like it's it's very 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 different in that regard so while in principle i am against things like this and i think recently you remember i was not so happy about the christopher ward 12 I was harsher towards that and its similarity to things like the PRX and the Chapek Antarctic than I am in this instance, because in principle, I agree with it. But I also realize that we're kind of falling into the trap of making too many direct comparisons with this piece in the Dreamwatch simply because there's nothing else like them. Like when we look at the specific elements of something like the 12 versus the Antarctic and the PRX, you can see like the combination of those elements. But as I said earlier, is that such a problem? Because we're looking for the finest combination almost now. List me 10 watches that are unlike any other watch in any way in the industry, and I will give you a biscuit. No biscuit for me, Rob. Not because I'm on a diet, but simply because I can't. So well said. And obviously, we all agree on the IP, the intellectual property, and, and the artistic uh, uh, assets here. And it's very interesting what you said, because I thought about it a lot, because this discussion got sparked in the real-time show network, and it was a very heated debate, which was very interesting. So I remember two things. Um, I was listening to our dear friend Ariel Adams, who was on the show. He interviewed the gentleman in the US that started the brand Barrelhead. And I've never heard of it, so thank you, Ariel. You pointed me out to that amazing project, which that gentleman is also crazy about futuristic designs, space age design, and he was adoring Ulrich. He was dreaming about Ulrich, and his dream was to create a watch that was almost a tribute to Ulrich. So Ariel, being close in California to him, they met rather early on. Ariel became kind of a mentor to him. And at a certain point, he said, you know what? I need to introduce you to Martin Fry and Felix Baumgartner, the founders of Ulver. 
And as he said, he he did it. He introduced them. Felix and Martin invited him to Geneva to come spend days with them. They became friends and they kind of gave him his blessing on his idea, project, and brand. Now, the first project, I believe, has been sold out. He's working on the second project. It's definitely not a copy. Would you even say it's a tribute? I don't think so. So that's very interesting because that falls into the uh, trail of thought that you raised, Rob, that, and which was raised in our network, was Theo and Guillaume should have gone to Denis and asked his permission. So by stating that, we, and if we agree, we then claim that uh, the Argon watch is a tribute watch, very much inspired. Now we don't know, A, if that's the case, if they see it themselves that way, and if they have asked Denis. Now, my question to you both is, what if, and there are two ifs, two scenarios, if we play this game of chess or decision tree that we follow, what if Theo and Guillaume don't even think it's similar to the, the Bethune? Didn't even think about it. Probably they've seen it. I mean, it's hard not to have seen this watch if you're a watch nerd. But let's assume they made this watch without having the dream watch in their minds. Okay? So that's one. And on the other hand, if they did think of it being a tribute watch, and imagine hypothetically they went to Denis, and Denis didn't give his blessing. What then? Would you have killed the project being Guillaume and Theo? Back to you, Jens. I mean, this one's tough because on, on one hand, I, I kind of subscribe to the saying, which is ask for forgiveness, not permission. On the other hand, you know, it's a small business. I wouldn't want to burn any bridges. So I, I have to clarify again, I'm speaking for someone else when really these are kind of my points of view. You know, the Dibethine on one hand, the Dreamwatch is a pretty specific watch. So on one hand, you could say, well, there's no way they really found out about it before. But on the other hand, it's so specific. It's like they can't really have designed one without the other. So, you know, Dibethun, I don't think is going to be losing any sleep over this because they only made a small handful of the dream watches. I don't think there's a lot of crossover between the markets. So, yeah. And I think one thing I'll just go back to before, you know, Rob, I hand it over to you for your thoughts is that the watch industry seems to have this very specific habit of identifying something that shows up somewhere else. And this happens everywhere, right? I mean, like if something gets hot on the radio, you hear 10 of the same songs afterwards because everyone's chasing the trend. But ultimately, you know, if the product is good, the product is good. Like uh, think of the Hulk and then the the green Seamaster 300M. Everyone kept saying, oh, Omega copied Rolex, but I don't see that anymore. I just see people saying, hey, this green color on the Omega is awesome. It's a great watch. So I think time will tell. Um, as to whether that happens here, but if the product is good, it should hopefully stand alone by itself over time. Yeah, there's a slight difference, I think, between what I would say is a trend, and that's in the trend for green dials, and then the design of a watch itself. I think that obviously we are informed by the market, what is mostly commercially viable, and those things move in waves. And so designs as well as trends move in these groups. They migrate together in mass herds, shall we say, from one part of the design 
cannon to the other. And then the other thing that sticks out to me is this watch. And I think as we talk about it, I'm becoming more and more sympathetic to the idea of emulation. It's it's one of two, effectively. Like, I'm looking at the whole industry and I'm thinking, okay, well, we can't say that there is less difference between this watch and the Debitune and uh, Tissil PRX and the Chepak Antarctique. We can't say that. Like, they, they are probably more different in terms of their angles and in terms of their construction and in terms of even maybe their finishing. I don't know, but like, it, it's weird that we're sort of persecuting designers for trying to use new combinations of existing forms i think that they've done a pretty good job actually of making another watch in this style i mean it is a very ergonomic style it is almost an obvious style for a shape for a watch so it's a bit crazy that there's only been so few of them made before so yeah i'm kind of softening very very much on on that point i mean when i when i design watches myself i'll be straight up with you what i do is i kind of start out with a combination of elements from different watches and change them slightly so for example i love the zenith a384 case particularly and i was thinking you know what if that case had a better bracelet and if it had a bezel around the glass and if the glass was a slightly different profile and if the crown were a little bit bigger that'd be an awesome watch but I'm still starting off with the inspiration of the A384K. So I'll plonk that down on the page. And then I'll say, oh, what bracelets do I like at the moment in the industry? Oh, I like the one on the Glassiter Original 70s Chronograph. So I'll put that on the case of the A384. And then I'll look around and say, well, what bezel profile am I looking for? Well, I like the one from the Antarctic. That's great. Let's take that. And then you think, well, shall I put the same crystal profile with it? Or is that a bit obvious? No, let's use like a bubble crystal or something or a double dome crystal. And you say, I'll take that from, um, I don't know, from, from the Lavender Sumerine, for example. You put all these elements together, and what you have is, as far as anyone else would think, a completely new watch. And you can always find echoes of previous designs in everything you do because of a limited number of shapes and because of the necessity of function. And so even the way I design watches and then come up at the end of it with what I profess to be an entirely original model, it's like when we were working with Straum, you know, when we designed the Jan Mayen. I was pulling in examples from all over the industry and sending them to Lasso and Einstein and said, right, okay, do the lugs like this, do the bracelet like this. Oh, let's use hands a bit like this. Oh, here's an example of a crystal that already exists. So I'm totally guilty of the same, and I would say maybe much worse and certainly less ambitious than Guillaume and Teo. So what do you think of that, David? Yeah, no, I think that's totally legit. And what you just described is, is I think, an efficient and totally correct approach to design. I mean, I want to be careful with my word here, and I'm, I'm not talking about the Argonne specifically, but I think that anyone that says, I don't need to pay attention to anything anyone else has, has done before me, I can start with a totally blank slate. I mean, I think it's a little bit presumptuous, maybe even arrogant, right? I mean, at the end of the day... Uh, we all have influences, and um, I think it's totally fair to say, right, I'm going to start with some of those influences and uh, and move away from that. So yeah, what you described is 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 totally great and totally valid. Okay, so at the end of all that, <laughs> and that was me thinking at the top of the show, we were going to be, you know, fighting from very polarized sides of the camp, but it seems like we're all coming down 
of the opinion that the Argon Space One is a really welcome addition to the industry, that yes, we believe there are certain, shall we say, respectful processes one should go through in the design of something like this, but ultimately we think that it's a good thing that the industry has this to choose from. All right, we'll wrap it up there. So like Alan said, if you want to get one of these, you've got to go on Kickstarter and go on Kickstarter quickly. There are still some of the standard polished and the titanium ones available. I think the carbon right hand and left hand are sold out. I think the blue titanium is still available in the Destro. If we go on there, have a look, see what's available. They run from 1,500 to 1,900 euros before taxes. They're really nice pieces and they will not be made again in this format. So do check them out if you like the sound of it from this article. So, We'll be back next week. And if you'd like to get in touch with us and ask us questions or suggest interviewees for future episodes, then you can do so by contacting me at Instagram. That's at Rob Nudds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or Alon at Alon Ben Joseph, A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H, or David, if you prefer it, D-A-V-A-U-C-H-E-R. You can contact Alan and I at our email addresses. That's Rob at therealtime.show or Alon at therealtime.show or via our contact form, However you please, please like, subscribe, and follow and share the podcast. We really appreciate all of the nice reviews that you've been sending, but please send more. We're hungry for good reviews. Until next time, stay safe and keep on ticking. 